everybody. Welcome to Making It, a weekly podcast about how to build a great business, produced by Enterprise. Your 6am briefing on finance, business and economics in Egypt. This season is brought to you by CIB, the partner of choice for CEOs and leaders of businesses at all stages of their growth stories. And by the United States Agency for International Development, which has a 40-year history of inspiring Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt. Your host today is Hashem, Enterprise's Executive Editor. We were very excited to speak with today's guest, not only because he's in microfinance, a topic very near and dear to our hearts, but because he effectively started the whole field in Egypt. At a time when finance was at most paying lip service to financial inclusion, Amr Abu'aish took a bet on Egypt's small and micro businesses when he founded microfinance company Tenmeya in 2009. And before you start thinking that we're being hyperbolic with our praises, let us paint a picture of what life was like before them. Let's say you're self-employed. You're running a nice little operation that's keeping you from starving. But you know it has the potential to do more than just put food on the table. It can establish a legacy for yourself and set you and your kids up for life. And since you need money to make money, off you go hunting for some capital. Now let's say you're a low-income earner from a low-income family, without much of an education to speak of or access to business connections of note. Where do you go? Before 2009, a likely answer to that would be a loan shark. And with that, a cycle of crippling debt and possibly just straight being crippled from busted kneecaps courtesy of an Egyptian Tony Soprano. Bye-bye legacy, bye-bye good life for the kids, and if you're in that income bracket, bye-bye today's lunch. Okay, now we're being just slightly hyperbolic. But taken with a pinch of salt, it isn't entirely inconceivable that this hypothetical situation was a possible reality for the overwhelming majority of business owners in the country. Because despite the majority of businesses here being considered small and micro-enterprises, and the biggest employers in the country, these businesses were for the most part shut out of a conservative banking system that saw the risk in them more than the reward. Even as late as 2014, only 14% of Egyptian adults had bank accounts, one of the lowest financial penetration rates in the MENA region. Their loss, said Amr Abu'aish. And with that, he went about setting up a sector that didn't really exist in Egypt beyond small units here and there in a few state banks. And he couldn't have chosen a better time because the revolution in 2011 drove home the point to policymakers that financial inclusion needed to be more than just a buzzword. And since then, we've seen a number of policies and regulations which mandate that the banking system open its doors and extend credit to small and micro enterprises. And the economic hardships that came after 2011 only hammered the point across that the informal economy had to be brought into the fold. 11 years and 270 branches later, that bet is still paying off. Tenmeya is still a market leader in providing collateral-free microloans to the working man and woman. Except now, he's doing it in a crowded and thriving space with Egypt's top financial institutions throwing their weight behind the sector. It was Amr himself who helped bring them along for the ride, first by partnering up with private equity giants like Qala Holdings, which opened the doors to the banks, and then later by being acquired by Evji Hermes in 2016. Amr is here to talk to us about that bumpy ride from the lows of figuring out how to get a license for a sector that didn't officially exist, to the highs of expanding to 24 governorates in Egypt. Amr, Tenmeya, and microfinance as a whole have come a long way and have come to epitomize the mantra so eloquently expressed by Drake, started from the bottom, now we're here. (laughs) 
Amr, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me over, actually. Um, we'd like to start off with the hard-hitting questions. Sure. Get those out of the way first. Okay. So please tell us, what was your favorite toy or game when you were growing up? Uh, interesting. Um, my favorite activity was always related to Boy Scouts. It was in a uh, British school in a place called Kano, northern Nigeria. And, Nigeria? Uh, yes, that's where, that's where I was born. I lived there until I was 15. And uh, Boy Scouts was very exciting for me. So I was uh, a sixer. A sixer is a leader of a six-pack. A pack of six. And uh, uh, my pack was called the Eagles. And I was the sixer of the Eagles, meaning I was leading this pack of six. All right. Walk us through uh, yourself. You were a Boy Scout and then a banker and then an entrepreneur. And in between a lot of other stuff. <laughs> I'm sure, yeah. Uh, no, I was uh, born and raised in Nigeria. My parents, uh, my late father was a fantastic man and an architect, a very clever man. And my mother is an architect, a very uh, a fantastic woman, yani, uh, a very strong woman, I think. So then you sold out to the dark side and went to banking. Nope. No, never did that. I, um, <laughs> I engaged with... Uh, a uh, USAID project. Nora Fidish Ebert was, Khalas, uh, they'd set up some new programs and they adjusted a few things. And I got an amazing, amazing experience with those guys. Uh, amazing. And beyond the impact of this, of these assignments and being present and seeing this kind of relationship they had with the cooperatives and the government and the, and the clients of the cooperatives. And everything uh, was was great, and I decided I I had to decide what my next career step was. So I applied for one of the big multinationals um, that worked in fast-moving consumer goods, and at the same time, I saw an announcement for a USAID project related to training. Now, I had become extremely interested in people. I was I always was, I guess. You know, I uh, together with my cousin at the age of fourteen. We did a backpack tour of Egypt. We did two, one at the age of 14 and one at the age of 15 alone, accompanied by his cousin, my second cousin, Malev Hamouen, uh, of the different sections of Egypt. One of them was 17 days, starting from Cairo and ending in Aswan. Okay. This is on trains. Trains with backpacks and a tent, hitchhiking, moslat, kullaha. Yeah, tell us what you learned, what you saw. I loved people. I, I loved uh, the concept of uh, human development in general. And I had a lot of fun. It had to come with fun. And she, right. uh, uh, the Are you having fun at Tanmia? Absolutely, Taban. Is that spirit still there? Uh, is that, am I the only one having fun? <laughs> or is other people, are other people having fun? That is a big question. <laughs> okay. How about in as short as you can, Tell our listeners what is Tenmeya and what it does. Okay, so Tenmeya was um, is a uh, young organization uh, in terms of the years of establishment. It's been up and running for eleven years now, and it is a uh, microfinance company. So today we have to call it that because it's licensed. But when it was set up, it was a company that was meant to provide access to financial services for the low-income groups. 
with a much more expanded definition than the one in the Egyptian law today on microfinance, but that's the setup. Today, if I'm describing Tanmeya, a company with, an, uh, with a geographical presence in 24 out of 27 governorates of Egypt uh, in uh, 270 branches, employees going on to 5,000 and offers uh, micro-enterprise loans. And these are loans for the micro-enterprises. Today, we provide loans that range for up to two years. Uh, most of them are one-year loans for working capital. So we don't work with startups. We work with existing only enterprises. That's where the reputation comes in. When That's, you go in and yes, you look for Yes, we do the field that... investigation to uh, as the way to interpret the repayment capability. This is a uh, collateral-free loan. And our loans are in part of our description, something in the evolution now uh, of the new age versus the old age. We were the quickest in the market by providing loans from the day the client applies to actually conducting the investigation, what we call underwriting the loan and delivering the cash. What's that process? How long is that? That is now under two days. We're the quickest wow. in the market, but uh, the new... Uh, Data and digital revolution is talking minutes. This could happen now in minutes? So it's happening in other places in the world in minutes. And uh, that's what we are, are aiming at. to be. I hope you think, so. When do you think you'll get there? Uh, it's uh, very difficult to assess because there are a lot of capab uh, things, uh, third party involved uh, that I, I have no control. How do you assess your customers? So far, our customer assessment is based on field investigations on their reputations. Okay. How about is, a, is the question of the ear. We are undergoing a uh, worldwide digital transformation, if they like to call it that, or the fourth industrial revolution related to data. For, uh, assessing clients has many, so many techniques. Some of them sound, in a way, uh, very cold, because they're based on data and data interpretation. Calculations. Uh, very cold without the direct mm -hmm. human element. Right. It's actually in the core of customer centricity. Customer centricity means uh, being close to the client, understanding their needs and actually delivering those needs. And the client's preferences for treatment have changed and are changing dynamically to the extent that I think proximity is the main element. Now, we used to understand proximity in terms of geographical presence, but now proximity is smartphone related and uh, digital related more than anything else. Give us an idea about like what the landscape was before you started. Then well, it was, if I was a guy in a Kushk and I needed money on the quick to pay for something, who would I go to? You go to a street lender, a guinea big name. Uh, oh, Loan shark. Yeah, absolutely. Egypt is full of loan sharks. It goes back to ancient Egyptians. Yeah. So there was a social need for this to happen. Ah, the market is drowned with uh, street lending. The replacement value was very high. The supply was very low. Right. All the estimates show the supply gap of 90 and 95% with all the NGO efforts because it never... So picked. unbanked. Ah, so, so unbanked. I'll give you an idea. In 2000, 2001, one of the research I was doing for uh, Yusuf Bouteghelia, 2% of enterprises, the larger 2% of Egyptian private sector, accounted for 94% of the credit extended by 
the banking system in Egypt. Whereas 98% of the Egyptian private sector only accounted for 6% of this credit. So what you had was a huge distortion. That's a, that's a huge distortion. And we used to work on uh, trying to create a system to make sure we're not looking at equal distribution of credit without looking at the notion of proper underwriting of credit. That's proper granting. So we're not saying that. But what we're saying is uh, the lender, which is always by law a bank, with the exception of the new microfinance law that came out. We are the first formal lender besides banks. Uh, the lender here, the financier, uh, simply did not uh, meet the need of the people. Right. Okay. Uh, until uh, certain central bank governors came on board and started to revolutionize the banking system. I want to talk about you guys when you guys were a startup. I don't think there was microfinance in Egypt back in 2009 when you were starting out. And that always was a very interesting story to me. How how did you guys get in in a sector like that just didn't exist in Egypt? Or like, how would you even get licensed when you were starting something this new? (laughs) I mean, the industry existed. It was a legal challenge to get it registered. I had this notion. I had moved between banks to start up uh, microfinance in another bank. I think I only spent one year in the other bank and I always wanted to set this up. I started talking to one of my colleagues in the new bank, somebody I had just recently met and I think he's a great guy in what we call banking operations. And um, I had a friend uh, who was also related to the SME world working for one of the uh, German organizations in Egypt and um, he had a friend uh, who uh, was related to technology somehow. And the four of us started discussing this idea of my request. Yeah. And uh, we took the idea towards a business plan. And um, we did the business plan. And then uh, we said, okay, what are we, what is our modus operandi? What is our model? And our model was very simply to offer the same service that I'm used to offering through a third party, to Yanni, that was the original model, and mainly the post office. The biggest banker in Egypt. Uh, supposedly, yeah. Wow. And I said... And uh, this is what you tapped into. No, we didn't. Uh, just realized, uh, it hit me then, that why put our hands in a third-party risk in any way? You need to control the environment. And uh, it was really Hazim who came with this and said... Uh, how much would I pay for rent for a shop? I said, listen, the reason I was going to cooperatives or anything is I need to be on the ground in a shop format. The industry doesn't operate this way. They mention to decrease costs. And I don't think we are looking to become a financial shop, a high street lender. And that's what we should be. We should be ground floor shops in the high street of wherever we exist, in the low-income areas nationwide. uh, We said, okay, you know what? Uh, The guy is often... This was the vote of confidence. So we never really got something material out of the Ministry of Investment or the minister. But we got a vote of confidence because the moment I went, I went to this meeting, I told my colleagues that were helping me or we were co-starting this company at that point in time, I said, listen, I know this person, I'll go to him. And he knew the quality of my work and he said, listen, this is fantastic, keep doing that. 
Then we had the legal challenge. There is no law. Yeah. How did you get the license? I'm not uh, to give out cash loans. And I went to one of the uh, minister's advisors. I won't mention his name. And uh, showed him the legal advice and said, uh, we want your uh, support in actually uh, setting up the uh, business as a normal uh, marketing company for uh, that is uh, that is allowed to market uh, bank banking products which was something mawuda at gafi the general authority for investment it's a shareholding company and he said listen you do that and i'll make sure that you're in trouble Whoa. because this is not legal was the issue also that it was supposed to be registered as a private business as opposed to an ngo la la khalas no never that wasn't the issue that new thing was we were the second company to actually go into this field mm. uh, as a private as a fully private sector investment the mm. only semi private sector investment that did that in egypt was bong to care formerly okay. and later on bank of alexandria in tizis and paul the other dilemma of course was finding the investors and this was about about how did you get them to buy into this a lot of those around me were feeling sorry for me And, uh, Why? Because I decided to give up a very senior banking position for to pursue this. They weren't sure it's going to work. Yet. Right. And my colleagues had not resigned. I was the only one who resigned. You took that risk. I was spearheading this, and I resigned for perceived conflict. And uh, uh, so I had the highest risk here. And even when you look at our pool of money that we had. So I had double what they did. Uh, I had committed double. I didn't have double what they did. Uh, they had, but I had committed everything I owned, Yanni. And it would set up a very small operation, assuming I found the bank. So anyway, that didn't work. We started shopping. I called up a schoolmate of mine who uh, ran one of the local investment boutiques. And I uh, and then we went for a meeting. Somebody got us a meeting with one of the lead investment bankers in the country. We sat down with a guy who probably gave us five minutes, Ashen Mugamdani. Right. And we started talking. The meeting took three hours. He wouldn't let us go. And that moment, we knew as far as investors were concerned, we had something. Vote of confidence. So all you needed to do was just get into a room and explain it to them. Yes. And at that point in time... Like you didn't have to fight through any cultural biases or anything like that. You just sat down, explained it to them. No, there were no cultural biases. We were the same profile of people. Right. Okay. Same breed. Yeah. Of, okay. Of bankers. Uh, no cultural differences of any form. Uh, but we were in this. You are a startup person uh for an investment that needed in our opinion 35 million pounds as capital whereas we provided five five or six hagakida uh that would make it a much smaller operation but it was all about leverage and you needed a bigger operation and therefore i would be accept being diluted uh with a large investor because that would make the growth pattern differently who are your early big investors if you don't mind me asking our founding partner mm. ended up being Ahmed Hekel and uh, at that time it was called Citadel oh, Capital Qala. of Qala Holding mm. uh, with 51% Egyptian Gulf Bank with 24% myself with 12% and my two partners each at 6%. Okay, so, so that you, was the you, founding You strategy. decided for the sake of this business you were going to take a smaller cut. Uh, a smaller cut in percentage but right. I was uh, see uh, you and I uh, you're thinking the way I was thinking 11 years ago all right 
so even if I was a commercial banker, uh, I didn't have this kind of knowledge. I thought, hey, it's all about the shares. Shares and percentage are very important, but it's the size of the business. It is not about how much you own in the business, except if the relationship is such that you must assume control, otherwise the others will kill you in the control element. So year one, you guys had 38 branches right off the bat. Yes. Explain that. This is year one. Okay, so... Uh, You're now at 270, but year one, that was 2009, it was 38. Yeah, yeah. What happened was uh, as soon as we had a shareholding structure, we I had the money in the bank, my money. And I decided to go ahead without with committing my own Amra Boeshi and his personal money onto this as part of the informal capital until we capitalize. And I put this money in the bank and went ahead and rented an office and put everybody in front of the fact and reality of the matter is there is an office. And I paid it out of my pocket. I got reimbursed on that as part of startup costs. Yani. But uh, that was actually taking action. So that was January 2009. By the time we had registration, it was March 2009. But then the bank decided not to come in. We didn't have portfolio funding. And this is what we owe Ahmed Hekel. And uh, Citadel believed in this. It was Citadel at the time. And the bank pulled up the most important element. He didn't see it as the most important element. He thought, Sah. He thought the most important element was the management team. And he had the capital to invest in this company. It was the smallest investment probably, Annie that he ever made. Uh, so that was a turning factor. Now we could start shopping with the bank, getting trying to get other banks on board with a very strong private equity firm behind us who would make life easier. That was his notion. And he said, go ahead, register the company, and I'm putting the capital in cash inside the bank account. And that's a very brave way of doing business. Very brave. Uh, he's in the business of risk and a very brave way. He made a bet for us. And I hope, I always think it paid off and I hope it paid off. Well, let's talk about that exactly. Um, you then get acquired by EFG Hermes. Yes. Uh, talk us through that decision. Did they approach you? Were you guys looking for more investors? Was Citadel looking to exit? What's Citadel was looking, uh, Kala Holding at that time was looking to exit as part of their, uh, they were divesting some of their investments by nature of being a private equity firm. Was it easy to get EFG on board? It was a full sales process and it was a very uh, jumpy ride because it was not the first sale attempt. What year was this? 2000, the sale concluded in 2016 and May was offered in May 2015. Made in it is brought to you in association with USAID. For 40 years, the American people through USAID have invested over $30 billion to inspire Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt. I think I got ahead of myself because I wanted to ask you one of the interesting things when I was researching this was revolution 2011. Very interesting. Uh, and this is, all right, year one, we were 38, year two, you were 88, you were around 90, I think, by the time the revolution happened. Talk to me about that. How did you guys survive it? How did you guys adapt? Uh, this is, uh, I, uh, I went once in 2003 I did my um, sort of executive education in London Business School. So in one of the courses, there was always a case, there was a case study about a person who got locked up in a, rest, in a factory, a director in Greece, okay, uh, who got locked up in his office surrounded by, and the whole building was surrounded by disgruntled uh, workers in the factory and a union strike uh, asking for double the pay. 
and how he had to maneuver his way out of all of this. And this is a story I always remember. I always relate this kind of practical education and how you can face actually situations in real life where you think of this person and you think of this case study. And that's why I'm telling you about it now. And in the revolution, it sounded very similar. So and by the time we had the January incidents, we had, a, I think, 85 branches at the time. I'm not sure. And all the requests started coming from all over the country. One of the branches, which is in the outskirts. Oh, you mean people were coming to you at requesting money? Ah, double the pay and triple the pay and uh, all kinds of things. What about in terms of like your clients? That must have caused a lot of disruption on that side as well. The disruption was already happening. We were, and uh, subhanAllah, and he, sometimes you need to listen to advice. We grew very quickly from 2009 to 2010. So our outstanding amounts in the market, and this is the money that we've, uh, we have left in the market with our clients that have to be repaid to the mayor, were around 235 million pounds, give or take. Yeah. That's outstanding. Uh, that's outstanding. That was by November 2010. Mm. Okay. And prior to that, one of the lead bankers, Yanni, had mentioned, the guys, you know what? You've grown. This is dangerous because we believe that something can happen to you guys. We said, what? He said, just watch out. And then a few weeks later, we woke up in the morning going to work. And uh, uh, we, uh, my team comes in and says, uh, the bank has not transferred any money. We can't give the clients any money. I said, why? Try to get through to the bank CEO, who was an interim CEO at that point in time. And uh, he wouldn't take the calls. And then two days later, we discovered that Central Bank had given instructions to the bank not to transfer any money to Tanmeya because they were investigating whether this bank was doing enough to protect depositors' money. Now, that's a very fair investigation by the Central right. Bank. And Taib uh, Meshi, when is this going to end? Now we're okay. Now we have all the... We have an agreement, we have a contract uh, done by fantastic lawyers who advise the central bank on a lot of legal issues. And there is no, there are no grounds for us to speak to the central bank because we're not a bank. Mm -hmm. So it had to be between the bank and the central bank. And at the same time, we didn't have a regulator. We had nobody to go to. And not issuing gives a signal to clients. And immediately the first reaction of clients uh, after some time with I don't know exactly how much time, would be not to pay back the loans because it looks like this company, something wrong could happen to it. Mm. So issuance is part of a process here. So even you guys were kind of looked at by regulators as part of the informal market. La, the informal yeah, sector. Uh, in a way, yes, because it grew too much to a scale. Right. Okay, but uh, the scale was different from what they had seen in uh, Rifi. Mm -hmm. Okay, and the growth of the scale, and they wanted to make sure they maybe if he was taking, they didn't see early on that you guys could actually be a gateway to kind of shedding a light to the informal. Uh, uh, market? I think they did through this process, right? The mem, okay, and uh, this process started. I remember very well, thirtieth uh, of November two thousand and ten. Uh, no money came in and we spent the whole of December, nothing coming in, Umishfahmin, until uh, we decided to go to. Uh, the head of the FRA, I can't remember what it was called at that point in time, EFSA, Egyptian Finance, yeah. Dr. Mm -hmm. Ziyad Bahedi. By personally contacting him, and we went and sat with Dr. Ziyad. We said, listen, assume you are the regulator. You've been working on the microfinance law for a long time. 
So there was legislation in the works at the in the time. in the pipeline. It took mm-hmm. five years, but it was in the pipeline. Uh, and I said we have nobody else to turn to. So we stopped, and our portfolio started dwindling, and we we're worried, and my staff is worried, and we were just approaching what we call operational break even. Yani March 2011, uh, the revenues will be at the costs, and everything will be fine, and no need for anything. And then all of a sudden, this hit us. So there are no revenues. The revenues are very little now, and we're worried about the collection because we're not issuing, and a lot of clients will use this to their advantage and say something is wrong and not repay. This went on on the 24th or 25th of December. I uh, We went to Zia Bahedin, also an ex-colleague in uh, Maktab, uh, Dr. Yusuf. And the next morning, he called me, and he was a board member in the Central Bank. He called me from the governor's office and said, yeah, I spoke with the governor in Saitaba. Go sit with the guys. We're not going to be stiff, Yanni. If there's an but if there's an issue, the central bank is going to stand on its ground. So, so you understand that, Taban, and I will not explain it to you in mm. But to go sit with our guys together with the bank. We went, we understood what they wanted. It boiled down to 16 different requirements. And all the requirements were in protection of the poster's money. All right. And by virtue of being a banker and all of us, we could understand that. Yeah. It's a perfectly reasonable. So we said, okay, do we mind if we comply with these requirements over time? It's not a financial capacity, but for me to call for a general assembly to approve something or for me to do that legal proceedings. And some IT solutions required are not in our hands. They're in the hands of the bank. Mm -hmm. It was a bank issue at that time, not ours. And they said, okay, if you commit to this bank, uh, to this plan and get me this document, we'll let you start. By the 15th of Jan, we had all the documents Father had two, three commitments, post-dated, and we could start, and we were preparing to start. 25 Jan happens. Start <laughs> Okay. We started on the 1st of Feb, and it was a critical decision. Uh, and the decision was, we can't wait anymore on let, not letting a signal out, on letting the especially signal out. Especially at that time, you and think, right? And especially at that time, mm. we are not going to get our money back. Right. And this was a stress test by Central Bank because this 235 million went down to 165 in two months. We were collecting. So we proved to everyone that we could collect. Uh, even during those tough times. Even during those tough times. Uh, risk taban went higher. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were late dues a lot because of curfews, because of uh, because of everything. Just getting around, yeah. Uh, but we took the decision consciously and we activated the company. Um, so today... Tell us, give us an idea of the business. How many borrowers do you have? What's the value of the loans that are out there? So we have, uh, give or take, uh, 400,000 active borrowers. But uh, and the value of our portfolio, give or take, is uh, in the vicinity of three and a half billion Egyptian pounds. Uh, We are at an issuing capacity of 20 million pounds of loans every single day. Wow. Uh, through the network, so every single and this is over a two-day period. You guys would be able to ah, but every single day at the end of the day, we'd mm. issue around twenty million pounds. Okay. We're not happy with this capacity. We need to up this capacity. Uh, we need to expand, and uh, we need to uh, be everywhere for everyone. Expand where? Because you guys were expanding right from the get-go. Expand where is... do you guys don't exist? No, I don't think here. the geographical existence. Uh, I think the next move is to be to exist in your pocket. Right. Okay. So, uh, and uh, right now, because of the growth, we opened 160 branches since the acquisition of EFG. The proposition on the table 
that they bought or took an investment decision on, then the results today are higher than what was in the proposition. Okay, so they're champs for making, winner. For making this decision. Mm. But then my teams and my colleagues are champs for getting those results. And it's a win-win situation. So uh, right now, after this huge growth in the past three years, I think it's time to take a step backwards. Look at the market. So many new entrants, a lot of money is pouring in. So yeah, tell me about how you adapted to this competition now that everyone's... Uh... You'd be surprised. Competition did not just hit on the client level. Uh, Tanmeya is the sort of the uh, the multinational of the group, yani, of the industry. So You're the top dogs. If uh, anybody walking into this market wants to hire from Tanmeya, so uh, that's what the whole market did. It's, it's okay. Uh, so that was the first uh, sort of... Uh, uh, attack in a way on us uh, on our market positioning in the market through this. Uh, we had we were expecting that, mm-hmm. and we had the solutions ready for that. Okay, uh, didn't want that, but we were ready. But you said you were concerned. I am concerned about. about the market practice itself. Oh, over over indebting clients because I think the credit policies out there are very relaxed. And everybody. So this competition is loosening up a lot of the control measures that kind of mitigate the risk. There's a very strong drive for profit. Everybody saw Tanmeya's sale as revolutionary. And then there was a partial uh, divesting of one of our competitors also in the private sector that made a lot of money, the same kind of multiple. So everybody started seeing money. And now all of a sudden, the war we had to fight to get an investor on board and the bank, the stories I was telling you are not applicable anymore. Mm. It's the investors looking for management teams. Right. It's the other way around. And the banks looking for entities like ours to give money to, especially that we are totally saturated in terms of funding from the banks. Okay. And well-established too. And from within, we are very... I was just going to ask you that, like the default rates, what are they looking like? The lowest yeah. ever. The lowest in the whole yeah, and the, the finance and the whole banking? Uh, uh, much lower than the banking sector. Right. Any, any number? Uh, an absolute default is less than 1%. Wow. But we use a different measure called portfolio at risk. Right. And this has grown in the industry in the recent years because mm-hmm. of over-indebtedness. See, okay. this is the lack of innovation side. But, huh? mm. uh, the market the is this big and everybody, yeah, exactly. But everybody doesn't know any better. It used to be a supplier's market. Mm. So everybody is still offering what everybody else is offering. So everybody's locked. It's like having a lar- very large apartment and being locked in one small room, okay? Mm -hmm. Simply because nobody is armed well enough with ideas and creativity to go to the next phase. And we're grabbing the opportunity of watching the market because uh, according to research in countries that crashed in microfinance, and this is a very tough psychological game, and uh, the research are showing all the indicators that could lead to a crash in Egypt unless there is proper intervention. So you feel the market needs intervention? The market does need some intervention, okay, which is the exact role of regulators worldwide in advanced economies in the... Is the microfinance law not doing that? No, it is. And the regulator is doing a a very good job. And it's the FRA. Uh, That's your regulator. Yes. And central bank is indirectly very influential in all of this. Of course, controlling Uh, the banks. And so we need to see what is happening there. Okay, and the effects of those interventions to be able to assess what the market situation is, even if our competitors came close to us. I'm not shy on capacity. Mm. Okay, mm. I'm not shy on capacity, but I'm not irrational. Otherwise, it would be hubris. And by the way, hubris of management teams is one of the indicators of crashes. 
in markets. And I don't think we should be that overconfident in our capabilities. Can I ask you then, have you guys changed any way that you do business? Absolutely. Since the competition oh, yeah. has come about? Oh, yeah. Now it's... Uh, what do you do different now than well, when you did? Uh, we haven't done differently yet uh, something uh, material to clients. Mm. But what have we done? Uh, two years, we've been learning a lot about the digital world, artificial intelligence, machine learning beyond. So yeah, actually talk to us about what you guys are doing with fintech. We have, uh, we have an idea, very well established concept on what we will do. Mm. Okay. And uh, the whole idea is how and when to launch. It's a major part of our success. So we appear to be very behind, but in terms of deliverable to the market. But this is an intentional holdback, not because of market conditions at you all. You just want to go in ready. We want to go in with a certain level of readiness that's not the normal uh, readiness. Mm. And uh, this is requiring so much more. And I'd rather take the risk until I can't wait anymore. Mm -hmm. And if I find it, I find it. If I don't, what I have is really good already. Mm. Okay, uh, we would launch it. But more important... Anything you can reveal? It is the way people conduct transactions with Tenmeya. Yes, it's delivery channel related. So as short as possible, in a sentence or two or three, um, let's say I was an investor, right? Pitch Tenmeya to me. At this point, investors are coming to us without a pitch. There you go. There you go. That's a good answer. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you want to comment or maybe suggest a guest, send us an email at makingit@enterprise.press. That's makingit@enterprise.press. Making It is produced by Enterprise, your morning briefing on business, finance, and economics in Egypt. Subscribe today for free at enterprise.press. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows. Did you love today's episode? Like us or give us a five-star rating and a review to help others discover us. This season is brought to you by CIB and by the United States Agency for International Development. And that's how we're making it.